Live from the Stone Age, it's The Clan Fire, a prehistoric podcast about Plangea, the primordial campaign setting for 5th edition. I'm David. I'm Finn. I'm Avalon. I'm Dan. And I'm Adam. And today's topics are the three themes of Plangea. Kinetic action, primordial horror, and mystic wonder. When we talk about these themes, what do we mean? Well, I think that the big idea with themes uh, is that we want for Plangea to feel like Plangea. We want you to know when you drop into the world that you're going to have an experience that, you know, while it can vary uh, from adventure to adventure, location to location, it has a consistent kind of underlying feel to it, something that is a recognizable way the world is and sort of an expectation that you can bring to the game. Like if you think about the classic D and D settings, you know, you know that like um, the Forgotten Realms is sort of just your classic generic fantasy. Uh, Dark Sun, you know, it's a sort of apocalyptic, oppressive uh, place. You know, Eberron is sort of like gritty and has like this noir feel, and um, uh, and then uh, you know, Planescape is just weird. So what you know, what are the what are the expectations that you can bring to the table? When you're um, when you're sitting down at a game of Plangea, that's kind of how I think of it. So the the baseline sort of like pulse of the game. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I I feel yeah. that, and it it definitely feels like you're basically just wanting to provide some sort of baseline for where you can build uh, people being able to build their own stories out of, right? And because if you're coming in with a different notion of what Plangea might be from from uh, just the description of the setting. Otherwise, uh, you might not have as much of a, a a conception of how to build your stories and how to make things feel like playing Jay. You might have a general sense of like the cool setting, but you might go into it with a generic fantasy approach, right? Like you're saying, and so that might not actually uh, portray to. It might not actually come across to your players um, like you want it to if you're not kind of using these these themes uh, underlying everything. Yeah. That's right. And you know, I'm I'm a big believer in flexibility, right? So I think if somebody was like, I don't want any horror in my game, I'm just gonna play a plain Gia game with my kids, like that's fine. Someone can go <laughs> in a different direction. But I feel like the point is these three themes are the themes that run through all of the original material and are themes that anyone coming to plain Gia material should expect to find. And that if something isn't working as I'm working on plain Gia, I often step back and look at it and say, you know, is it missing one of these aspects? It's it's both a way of sort of coming up with ideas as well as sort of diagnosing when something doesn't feel like it's quite working. I can ask like, does it, does it, is it kinetic? Is it, you know, is it a horror element? You know, is it wonderful? Uh, and in those ways you can sort of like examine whether it feels uh, sort of like native to the setting. I definitely agree with what you said about the uh, the diagnosing part and sort of the the fact that sort of the themes act as uh, you know general tenets by which you should be uh, trying to design things um, as far as evoking uh, certain sensations and sort of cert- uh, setting certain atmospheres. Um, yeah. So you know, definitely. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Having my thoughts here. No, no, you're good. Yeah, they're a DM tool as much as anything, right? You can sit down and sort of look at your game and be like, uh, I feel like something's missing, and and this one of you know, it might be one of these three things. It might be something else, but 
Um, yeah, it's sort of a, it's a jumping off place for these adventures. Definitely. Yeah, I think like one of the things I really loved about Plangia is the kind of no clear cut anything. Um, mm -hmm. It's a very rip and tear setting. Um, yeah, yeah. You kind of like, there's no clean math. There's no, oh, well, your silver sword cuts through the clean through the, I know it's more like you rip this poor villain apart with your bare hands. Um, yeah. <laughs> sucks to be villains in plain Gia. It's, <laughs> it's gotta hurt. Absolutely. Um, no fun and clean ways to die. Um, but really, I think that all of these aspects have a kind of real effect on character creation as well. Like when I've, mm. I've designed, I don't even know how many characters that are playing Gia because, <laughs> you know, that's what I do as a hobby. Um, and I always think, how would this character react to some of these tenets? Um, and do they fit well with it? Like it's something you can ask both as a DM, but also a player, like, is my character going to work in and love this setting? Yeah. Um, and maybe great. your character hates this setting. They hate the <laughs> mess, the dirt, the never being able to track things properly. And I think that's a really cool character concept. And maybe it's, you know, an ascendant, which I think we're going to get into in a later episode. <laughs> um, and they're just like really totally going with the kinetic action primordial horror kind of stuff i mean mystical wonder a little bit but ascendants are really scary <laughs> yeah well okay so i think that's a great jumping off point let's let's look at these three and sort of like describe and define them a little bit um so they are uh, the three themes um and two of these emerged early as like part of sort of the selling point. I think the summary for the setting that I've used in some places is discover a world of kinetic action, primordial horror. Um, and uh, so th these first two came early. The third one was infused in the setting from the very beginning, but it didn't get words uh, wrapped around it until much later. Um, but these three themes are first, kinetic action. So this is the idea that in Plain Gia, you don't just stand there and hit stuff. Like you are, um, one of my earliest descriptions of the setting was Mad Max with mammoths. Oh, it's, yeah. it's this idea of like, you are not just like fighting someone, you're fighting something as you're like leaping from one moving thing to another moving thing while something else is on fire and four other people are jumping in the air at you at the same time. Like everything is in constant motion, it's kinetic, it's chaotic by design and the best Plangia uh, combat design, as well as just sort of like the way in which you interact with the world, it has a sort of like constantly changing instability to it built in as a feature. I love that. I love that a lot because yeah, there's this kind of momentum that needs to happen for this and uh, keeping that involved in you know, maybe a chase scene, maybe even some sort of like intrigue or mystery that like you're on a timer, you know, you know, obviously yeah. some sort of, uh, you know, race against time to to do something. And and obviously also in the actual uh, action, the actual encounters, the battles that the players are going through, 
keeping that all kind of on the feeling of oh like it's probably not a good idea to stay still for too long you know what i mean like it's it's a good idea to keep it moving you gotta be on your toes there's so much stuff going on at the same time that you kind of need to need to have that that action still happening like uh, yeah you can't be a sedentary yeah. in this world that's exactly and, you know, right. I find that that sense of uh, that sense of uh, mobility and movement and momentum. I I find that that actually goes just beyond combat. You you see that a lot in the setting itself in places where you know combat would you know doesn't even take place. There is um, there is a sense of impermanence that uh, permeates the setting, and in the places that are more permanent and more. Uh, more stable and static uh those are the things that stand out as weird in this setting, yeah um uh, which i think is something that's really interesting that's a great point hmm. yeah. yeah they are the like things that work against the rule the, ge the general rule is that people are migrating right yeah things are happening that cause you to not be able to have those civilizations basically and so that's especially with like the, the giant empires they're the biggest example of like well they are powerful enough that they don't need to constantly move and you know not have permanent uh, uh domiciles and everything they can actually like make lasting things um and and so that's yeah like you're saying it stands out it makes it weird for someone to do that and therefore yeah by example basically you're showing here's what those people can do but you might not be able to do that yourself <laughs> you might need to keep moving yeah i i think i think that's sort of another one of those layers uh permanence versus impermanence that's like another one of those layers that separates um and sort of creates an alienation between these different factions uh and totally uh establishes a dynamic of power so i think i think you know the the idea of, of movement goes beyond just combat um and i i find it i find it fascinating that's great yeah i love it and i want to get into in the second part of this discussion um uh about how to sort of bring that into the game and how like what are great tools for both players and dms to, to use that throughout the game um but keeping keep, keeping high up on the summary here uh the, the next theme is primordial horror so <clears throat> this is sort of the idea that you know the the iconic um the iconic early person knew so little about the world and this is that feeling of there is so much that you can't explain. There is so much out in the darkness that um, you don't have any name for. <clears throat> and this is a lot of sort of um, playing with dread and playing with things that have no name. Uh, it's, it's a lot less about sort of body horror, although you can use that. It's a lot less about sort of that action, which is kind of covered in the first one. It's more about sort of that like nameless darkness that is sort of like, much more powerful than you um and that is sort of suffused throughout what's written in the setting yeah i, I think it's i think it's Go, really cool too that that there's uh it doesn't just need to be your classic like uh i don't know cthulhu-esque horror or whatever you know what i mean like things that we would normally understand as horror in a, in a fantasy setting in a sci-fi setting something like that um it doesn't necessarily need to just be, you know, tentacles and darkness and spooky stuff like that. It can be kind of this, like, uh, like you're saying, the the unknown 
of the world, right? Because yeah. there's things that are unknown in the world of Plangea that are known uh, or maybe more explained in a future in in a future scenario, like you know, in a progression on from Plangea. Yeah. But for the moment that we're living in in Plangea in the setting right now, it would be just like entirely inexperienced with that, right? Like the mortals that live in the valley, they just have no idea what, you know, how these these genies work or something. So, you know, something about yeah. them could potentially be like very, very terrifying and very, you know, ultra powerful and nothing that they can really conceive of at a certain point. And, but then also stuff that they encounter from day to day could also be unknown in some ways like the powers of gods might be not very under well understood by some people and so some of those could be sources of horror for uh for players and for uh people in plangea in general i like that yeah um i mean i there's also oh you go uh i was gonna say i think that this uh the primordial horror also ties a lot into the taboos which obviously we went all into mm -hmm. a ton last episode so i won't uh go too far into that but um, what I mean is that you know, this, the, you know, it's, it's not like a, a new thing. There's, there's obviously existing tropes about like, Hey, the world's going just fine. And now you have to go and stop somebody from literally ending the world. Like it's not a new thing, but, um, sometimes, uh, in bigger, like well-established settings, you're like, okay, why are like this, why is this ragtag group of adventurers the only people who, uh, are doing anything about this apocalyptic cult when there's like a like a ninth level casters uh mage school in the main city that has records of like everything down um and the fact that things are far more spread out and there's no written knowledge and yeah there are factions like the um sign of the hair and the recusants on both sides of the morality spectrum um, who are looking into and keeping track of things, although the recusants may be a cause of the apocalypse, depending on what they end up doing. Um, the <laughs> fact that uh, you don't have like, let's go to the library um, or right. what do we know about this person? If we like go and check out the records means that um even anything like, oh, we're, we found this temple here that's buried in, or these ruins buried in this forest that's like sort of well traveled, but not well enough that they've been entirely uh, they've been entirely scouted. So that sense of we can't really ask anybody. Um, we kind of just gotta either go in or not go in, which is obviously a decision you can make if you're uh, not uh, a dungeon murder hobo. Um, I, I can't speak to what that's like. Uh, I, um, it, it really, it, I, I do get that kind of dread while playing, um, in a, in a good way, uh, when there's something obviously like big red flags showing up, but you're thinking like, well, we can not go into the like murder ruins, but then are we going to get ambushed by like some just roving beast? Like there's, yeah. The, the lack of knowledge and the lack of stability uh, really puts you constantly on edge. And it's great for keeping things moving forwards and always being excited. That's awesome. The horrific yeah. fascination of uh, why do I feel like this cave was made for me? Oh, God, no. <laughs> Didn't we already make a reference to that in like the very yeah, part? Oh, you were here for that. Amalon, what were you trying to say? 
Um, I mean, I was just circling back to the library point because there's this big thing about monsters and everywhere where you're like, oh, well, it's a werewolf, so I have to use silver. And if I catch it, well, it's not under the full, and you know, on goes on. But there's this thing that you get to do in playing Geo where you're like, oh, you have no idea what this is. Sorry. Yeah. Um, and it's, there's this, I mean, there's this sense of unknown, obviously, but, um, the fact that you can't check anything and generally you go in completely with no knowledge of what is going on at all um is so much more fun uh the the way you can kind of surprise people and also use things that already exist in other universes that they just don't know are what they are um are is just super fun um and also there's no records of people being massacred by something. So yeah. either you get massacred by something and survive and live to tell the tale, or it's like, sucks. The last time anyone saw this, they were massacred, so they don't, no one knows what it is. Um, there's no like Wikipedia article from 15 <laughs> years ago that's like, oh, and as I'm writing this, I am dying. No, 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 no. There's none of that. We go back to libraries like a surprising amount here. Um, I, think well, I think it's thereof. important. Yeah. I mean, look at what was the book that Wizards just released? It's Candlekeep Mysteries. Like, yeah. the libraries and books are like a huge part of the assumption of the of the of medieval fantasy. Oh no! Yeah, we're just like... talking about the taboos again. What have I done? One thing I would like to add. Uh, one thing I would like to add, and this is really this builds off Avalon's statement, and this is more of uh, more of a more of a tangent to primordial horror. But um, the way information is conveyed, uh, both out of world and you know at the table from between players and from the DM to the player, and uh, also in world, the way information is passed along through. Uh, word of mouth and through symbols on the wall that could have multiple meanings depending on where you're from. Um, you know, I think I think there leaves it sort of actually leans into the thing where, um, at least as far as like foreshadowing goes, um, the idea that less is more, and if you leave it up to the human mind, the human mind will imagine the worst possible thing <laughs> uh, because that's just how we are when we're scared. Yeah, um, and I think I think ambiguity of information is uh, such a valuable tool for building tension and sort of in uh, foreshadowing and dread in a way that doesn't give away whatever you're trying to spring. Um, and I think that is, I think that is a super cool aspect that should be used. Love that. Well, moving on from the worst possible thing to the best possible thing, let's talk about <laughs> the third pillar, which is Mystic Wonder. Um, so, I mean, listen. Plangea is a setting where gods are everywhere, but they are just discovering what it means to be gods in Plangea. I don't think we've really talked about this on the show this much yet, but the idea is there are no universal gods. The god is that lion over there on that hill who's survived a really long time, and now people are starting to fear enough uh, that you can that he's sort of like accruing this divine power, or that tree over there that got struck by lightning and has not stopped burning since. So I think that the the idea of mystic wonder in the setting is that as much as you're seeing terrifying things, you're also seeing things that are 
beautiful, uh, natural or unnatural in amazing ways that um, you're sort of seeing with fresh eyes because the assumption is you're seeing it all for the very first time. I have this huge thing about uh, the 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 early gods and Mala and uh, the Triceratops god that I might not get into today. Uh, but definitely the kind of discovery and undiscovery aspects. Because um, everything is a discovery, kind of. When you don't have any kind of information, you are always kind of discovering something new and mystical that quote unquote no one has ever discovered before but it's really just because the story has never made it anywhere um so you kind of get to almost experience any everything for the first time like a world with no spoilers almost <laughs> yeah that's great yeah having that like freshness to everything there is great it's it's getting to to see it through uh yeah through those those you know virgin eyes kind of of like <laughs> This is this is my first time ever seeing something this big, right, or something like that, yeah. or, or seeing something this uh, shiny, <laughs> or you know anything like because metal doesn't exist, right? So like, right, something something shiny that is like uh, you know magically uh, infused with something, or just like part of the world that doesn't inherently have something, but it's just like something that the DM wanted to describe is looking like this. It suddenly is like this. Wow, it's like almost undescribably awesome in that way yeah. because because it's so fresh to to the the character's eyes and sometimes to the player's eyes right because the way that you can take a take a look at these is through the eyes of these these primordial people you know you don't have to be like oh no i've seen all that before like no you can you can be wowed at all times which i love yeah and i think in the same way it's that idea of like it doesn't just have to be things that we're familiar with that people are seeing for the first time it's that sort of like allowing for the weird um and the paradoxical right so like you just see i feel like it's an environment that sort of welcomes strangeness um and i totally. feel like mystic wonder leans into like beautiful strangeness like you know you just i don't i don't know like you walk into a glade and it's it's a sort of stuff that you can do in the feywild in a normal game but you can kind of uh -huh. do just like because it's there in Plangea. Like you walk into a glade full of flowers and then all the flowers lift off and are butterflies and then they turn into birds when they reach the sky and fly away. And that would just be like, okay, that just happened. Um. Yeah. And yeah, that can kind of just be part of the like changing and very weird like initial kind of nature of the world where like things aren't fully set in stone yet like maybe the laws of physics aren't fully like you know like oh boy. figured out yet because there's no god of of gravitation or electromagnetism <laughs> so <laughs> that's you know. really crazy if it's, it's like, like no you, you actually just fall apart into nothingness because <laughs> electromagnetism said no i, I don't want to <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, do, I, too I, far do like, I do feel like uh the mystic wonder and how to best sort of and how where that gets harnessed is sort of uh it's sort of because of the two parts of a the impermanence and the constant uh the constant changing of the setting which is what allows that idea of uh you know constant freshness uh one of the things that's discussed in the book is the idea of like moving land um and the fact that like 
even even the land itself is this very you know each of its forms is like a, it's a very transitory things and a transitory thing and things are always changing um and i love the idea that you can like come back to a place in you know 30 40 50 years many in the setting and uh, it can look you know you know it could be recognizable vaguely but have a bunch of things about it that have changed um i think that's really cool and the other part of it uh that sort of helps play into that and this sort of goes back to last episode a little bit but the fact that there is no written history and the fact that um though time is passing uh there is no way to measure the time that has passed so we are sort of you know plane is sort of in this cycle where uh you can play with time scale and you know things are the only thing that is is that the only thing that is static about the setting is that things are always changing yeah <laughs> that's great i love it yeah well i want to suggest i'm sorry avalon did you want to say something oh i mean i just i had a little a little thing oh, uh, yeah, which cool. is that the one thing that i was like oh hey that's a static thing um is gods and they have their little plain hallows they and they're turtled up and they can't move and unless someone kills them or all their worshipers die or you know whatnot um they're not going anywhere so you could like leave some desert-esque place for however long it doesn't actually matter um and come back and it's like a super lush jungle and you find this like scorpion crab and what could be called like divine hibernation um yeah. and that is your only sign that this was not originally a lush jungle that's oh. really cool i love that's it. awesome there's um this is just occurring to me now but you know one of the things that you hear sometimes about D, &D is that it's not actually um a fantasy it's actually a western because like the whole um the whole game is sort of built on this idea of like frontiers and sort of like black hats and white hats. And it's really built on a lot of like Western tropes. And uh, it's just occurring to me now that like, that one of the key ideas behind Westerns is sort of that idea of like, um, sort of like natural world versus sort of this like growing encroaching permanence, the sort of the fences being put in that are like closing off the wild places. And I feel like maybe that's part of what makes Plain Geo work is that it is kind of tied to that same Western question of like um, what sort of was and then this new sort of these, these fences that are being erected. So by the transitive property, what you're saying is that Plain Geo is actually a samurai setting. Yes. Because oh. all of the Western tropes are heavily based on samurai culture. Exactly. That is exactly uh, what I'm saying. I see. But yeah. plain Gia, I feel that, like Plangia yeah. is the opposite of that encroaching permanence because you're just like, nope, we don't have that here. Oh yeah, no, definitely. I think I think that's the point he was trying to get to. Oh, okay. I, yeah. I, I don't know. I feel like the well, this this gets back to <laughs> a conversation we've had before, which is like, what is Plangia's <laughs> future, right? Is it is it is this a one time thing or is this a cycle? And that is a question we will never fully answer. I think that this is uh, a world that is going to, I, I think of Plangia as a pre-apocalyptic setting, um, that everything is sort of leading up to cataclysm and the cataclysm is going to turn Plangia into medieval fantasy. Um, 
not everyone on this podcast uses that. <laughs> but I, lo- I love the implication there. I, have, I love the implication there that that medieval fantasy is the post-apocalypse of Plangia, though. Too, it totally is. <laughs> it's just like I, I love I love that idea in general. It's such a fun, fun little thing. Like, oh wow, like that. Yeah, that that could be a post-apocalyptic world. It's just not the apocalypse that we might have thought. That's yeah, all. exactly. Yeah. Cool. You're picking up what I'm putting down. But hey, yeah, let's yeah. switch over to unexplored lore. Um, I think we should do this section. And then after this, we can jump back into uh, sort of how to use the uh, the themes in your game. Uh, but first, let's take a quick break and do unexplored lore, uh, which is the part of the show where we look at new and iconic monsters, items, or spells through the lens of Plangea. And I want to hop into Dan's Wanderer's Tales, starting with... Uh, sort of your first installment, uh, the Lunge Tooth. Dan, do you want to tell us what Wanderer's Tales is first? Yeah, and sure. then uh, uh, open up the Lunge Tooth to us? Certainly. Uh, the Wanderer's Tales is just sort of, uh, it began as a way for me to vent uh, my excess creative energy uh, because I was <laughs> at the time badly in need of creative outlets. Um, so I just started writing. Um, and then I was three weeks in. And I realized it had become a trend, and uh, I sort of didn't want to stop. I wanted to turn it into a little series. Um, so, you know, right now, so far, it has more or less been uh, a series of different monsters, uh, though I do plan to include some items, include some NPCs, or maybe, you know, groups of NPCs. Um, and uh, most recently, my most recent release with the Wanderer's Tales was a god, which is, um, that was sort of a, that was a big release. So that sort of counts as, For sure. technically. But, um, yeah. It's a, great series. I recommend, it's a great series. I recommend that everyone who's listening go to the subreddit uh, awesome. or the Discord and uh, find the Wanderer's Tales. It's a really, really cool monster uh design and uh yeah it's awesome so let's start with the lunge tooth dan tell us about the lunge tooth certainly uh the lunge tooth was uh when i was first making it um i the it's actually the origin story is pretty funny um so back when i was a wee lad well more wee than i am now um i was i played a game called arc survival evolved uh some of the listeners may be familiar with it uh but essentially it's it, it is uh sort of you know uh there are a lot of parallels between it and plangia with regards to uh basically you know primal humans trying to survive in a world where they're surrounded by life forms that are way bigger way more powerful than them um and there is this uh there's this one monster and the one creature i suppose in the game called the uh called the caprosuchus which is you know based off of the very real Caprosuchus, also called the uh, the boar crocodile, I think. Um, but this is about the monster, not a history lesson. Uh, but the the idea behind the lunge tooth was uh, to take something that is conventionally regarded as a uh, sort of a slow, patient ambush predator and uh, turn it on its head while still maintaining its basis as this ambush predator so i took the crocodile and i was thinking okay um you know it's patient it sneaks up 
and then it strikes when you get too close. Um, whereas the lunge tooth is patient, it sneaks up, but rather than waiting for prey to get too close, it stalks prey and then it lunges at them, hence the name the lunge tooth. Um, while I was designing it, I wanted to try to uh, lean into both the kinetic action and the primordial uh, horror, the, the two themes, which is, it works out that we're talking about the uh, the themes today. Yeah, yeah, yeah perfect. So, it was planned. <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally. Um, so as far as, you know, primordial, primordial horror goes, you know, it's this thing with, uh, you know, it's very sneaky, it follows you, and you don't really know what it is until it hits you and suddenly you're getting chewed on. Um, and even then, you know that it's something that is sort of reptilian and crocodilian, but also not quite. Um, as far as kinetic action goes, you know, it had a, it has this uh, ability to sort of uh, lunge and do these like uh, very long straight line leaps. And then as it collides with something, um, it can sort of grab onto it with its teeth and then carry it the rest of the distance. Um, and the idea of that from a from a uh, you know gameplay perspective is. Uh, one of these monsters or a couple of these monsters could uh, very rapidly, um, you know, undermine an overconfident group by uh, suddenly separating them. Because, you know, there are a few things uh, as frightening in D&D when you're a player as a split party, uh, especially when you are not the people who voluntarily chose to split the party. Uh, <laughs> that is when things get very scary. You've so I wanted to sort split, of lean yeah. into those lean into those aspects um and it was it was just really fun to make this is a really That's... cool monster that i i really love that you started out this way especially um i love how how you've kind of put in a couple uh a lot of features that allow you to kind of get a, a sense for the fact that it is really like this this predator that is very evolved to do a certain uh a certain way of hunting right it has this specific way that it likes to attack and eat and and hunt and so uh you've built in all these features that really synergize well in that one thing which i think is really fascinating i also love um for some reason it just makes me laugh the uh the variant feature that you've put in here for the potential in this that you said that uh particular lunge teeth that are in the venomous i think it is yes the venom, yeah that's the one <laughs> yeah. that they really like dragonborn they just love the taste of Dragonborn, and so they literally have advantage on attack rolls against them when they go and try to, to, to yeah. eat them. I think that's hilarious, and I, yeah. I, I would love to have that happen, especially it's, with the Dragonborn at the party. Yeah, it's, it's pretty funny. Uh, it also it can also sort of feel like you're picking on your player if you do that. So be <laughs> careful. Make sure that make sure that uh, you know you know they know that there's no hard feelings. Um, because if you just if you just like out of the blue if you out of the blue uh say it's like oh yeah and also uh you know johnny uh you know it actually has advantage on attack rolls against your character sorry and you never explain why uh, just you. that just, that just <laughs> right, seems yeah. spiteful uh, well see, so, assuming that you've got the party that isn't going to be like why are you bullying this one person you're not going to necessarily say it has advantage that's against true that one person and if you are in a I, I find this concept super interesting because you know, somebody's not going to be like, ah, yes, they're always going after the dragonborn. They may be like, they're always going after the, the, the rogue, or they're all like, right, is it the yeah. color? Is it an? Maybe you did something recently, uh, and, and you're like, oh, what? 
are they, like why are this they hunting this person so you're right. like every time we're getting ambushed by these things and this one guy is getting wrecked every time so yeah. it's going to build into that primordial horror that we were talking about because they're going to be like what is what, happening? like what is <laughs> what am i me? missing here <laughs> yeah they yeah. might not even necessarily think like why me they'll just be like what like is there something about these creatures and obviously there is mm-hmm. yeah definitely yeah, and, that. and that was it was sort of a way for me to just sort of uh well also uh just you know uh author confessions um a feature called pride eater just sounds really awesome and a part of me <laughs> wanted to be able to put what part of me wanted to be able to slap that on a stat block uh so <laughs> Uh, that probably had a larger impact on me than I'd like to admit. <laughs> a lot of good design <laughs> happens that way. I'm not yeah. gonna lie. I thought it was cool. <laughs> and that's it sounded metal. Yeah, yeah. It was. It was for for a setting of uh, no metal. It was pretty. It was pretty damn metal. Well, there's no metal in Pangea because we used it all up in the lore. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Um, I, what I really love about the lunge tooth is its ability to disassemble a party. I just I think of Lego bricks, and then I suddenly think of a lot of Lego bricks that are no longer together. Um, and maybe it's the sadist DM in me that likes murdering these shit on my players. Um, but the idea that I could take that one cocky wizard slash spell kit spell skin and say oh yeah it sucks to suck but you're very far away from your party right now (laughs) yeah no idea how to get back when i feel Um, like splitting the party up that way splitting the party up that way and then abandoning them the venom abyss like separated is just i think something that will be fun to do terrifying even if they don't get actually fully dragged off like that just being even 50 feet away and grappled is something that's that a lot of characters are going to be very, very uncomfortable with. Yeah, that's yeah. rough. You I love, too, to, about You don't have this. to drop them off. <laughs> I love, too, about this, that, like, the classic uh, crocodile thing is, like, it lurks in the water and then lunges out, right? And it feels like this, it could actually lunge and carry you into the water, yeah, that was one of the uh, which ideas. Which would be a whole another had. level of terrifying. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. When I when I was designing this, I didn't I didn't want it to seem just like a like a cruel thing that was like high AC, high health, high damage, high everything. Um, you know, back to what uh, Adam was saying about hyper evolved. Um, you know, as soon as you've like fought three of these things and you sort of figure out their deal, um, they're actually not that hard to take down like um you know they're for for their challenge rating they're pretty they're they're sort of built to be glass cannons um you know they, their ac is middle of the road uh their hit points are on the lower side um but they are you know very mobile high damage uh they try to basically they try to finish fights within a round like that's that is ideal for them like a round or two and then and then they're done and if honestly if you know if that doesn't work um and they're finding out that their food is a lot hardier than they thought it might have been uh they need to start thinking about using their stealth capability and using their mobility to maybe think about leaving uh because you know 
worst comes to worst, they can always come back after they've uh, licked their wounds. I feel like this is a really interesting beast for a druid to wild shape into. Oh my god. Oh you know, no. I hadn't considered that, but uh, uh, but, uh <laughs> man, you know, mammoths exist. So uh yeah, I think that'd be really fun. I'm I'm not too worried about uh I'm not too worried about balance so long as things are uh you know outstripping the T-Rex in power. But yeah, I think that'd be super cool. Is this you is know. the T-Rex is the CR5, right? No, T-Rex is CR8. T-Rex is CR8. It is a oh, okay. it is a so staggering beast. But this is a this is a five, so you're you're safe. You're still in that pre T Rex yeah. zone. Yeah, pre T Rex zone. Uh, but I but I do love the idea that a uh, that a druid, which is like a you know ordinarily a quasi support caster, uh, can suddenly transform into like it and <laughs> can transform and like fill the the niche role of like rogue for a little bit, uh, <laughs> where they sort of like become become the assassin, become the ambusher. Um, I think that's cool. I have a personal yeah, especially... against druids, though. <laughs> I, well, then you're gonna love playing my my personal thing. But this is that is the reason. That is the reason because druids will pull that kind of shit <laughs> oh, and just annihilate whatever you're trying to do. <laughs> yeah, but oh, that's like, what a level yeah. fifteen moon druid. Like, come on, polymorph can do it right as you get polymorph. Yeah, I'd be more concerned about polymorph. I was thinking about that. I was like. Actually, much easier to do it with Polymorph. There may be like a handful of viewers who were. Oh, was that in the the actual Discord? I just remember me talking about like, no, 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 David, do not have your gods be like CR seventeen beasts. Yeah, yeah I explained to you that that's not a good idea. I was I was actually talking I was talking with David about this. Um, yeah, and this is actually one of the reasons that the the tags at the end of the day, end of the day ended up many of them ended up being celestial or fiendish but um but we sort of added a, an extra uh like an extra god tag which would basically set the creature apart and i think we also uh the feature isn't in there but i think it might be uh i think it's attached to um attached to the information blocks so to speak but uh it's the idea that like there is a you know a, a feature that basically outlines divinity as being something that other things can't uh you yeah know, transform into yeah. sort of like a uh, sort of like a reverse uh immutable form that golems have where mm -hmm. rather than changing their shape other things can't change their shape to match it yeah yeah we um, ran into this a lot is yeah this question of like what can turn into a beast and this is a world with big beasts so we had a couple of solves you're right like yeah. a lot of the bigger stuff we made we made monstrosities which seems to be how uh the original dnt materials handle it when you get bigger yeah. than a t-rex yeah we, we and then yeah at, uh, go on go on no go ahead please oh, i was gonna say we took a look at rock and we all sort of looked at each other and we're like it's it's really it's nothing more than a huge ass bird but um <laughs> but it's a monstrosity so uh right yep, that's how we'll do it yeah. that that track. so T-Rex became our cutoff. It's like, there cannot be a beast higher than CR8. And you're right, we invented the god tag, which, um, which yeah, just prevents, uh, you can't you can't turn into one of those. It's useful. And that, yeah, that, mm -hmm, exactly. <laughs> All right, anything else you want to say on the lunge tooth here? Do people, uh, Dan, do you see this like being a, a domesticatable beast? Do you, do you imagine like swarms of, Oh wow. Dragonborn. I, like... <laughs> I haven't thought of that. Um they're they mm, 
my 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 knee jerk reaction is no, but I'm yeah. thinking if you were to oh I don't know stumble upon uh, a nest and you were to kill mom and take a bunch of eggs, um, I think maybe you could domesticate them. You'd have to I be careful. Like yeah, a villain with a domesticate with a pet lunch tooth would be pretty dope. Yeah, yeah. No, I think I think if uh, if raised from you know if raised from hatchling, I think it could be done. All right. All right. Uh, well, with that, I think we're going to take us back over to part two on themes. And um, the idea here is that for the part two, we really want to dive into how to use these things in your game, right? What we don't want this podcast to be is sort of just like an abstract, you know, just the the uh, those of us who can gather just like jawing about the setting. We want to make sure that if you're trying to run a plain Gia game, or even if you're not in plain Gia, but you want to like import some of these ideas, how do we make these things useful to you at your table at your next session? So here's my pitch. I have a bunch of uh, tools or sort of like guidelines in the DM section for each of these themes. And I want to kind of like run these past the group here uh, and get you all's thoughts on them and sort of see um, see whether you feel like these would be useful at your table, um, how you would use them. And then also, obviously, if you guys have other ways that you'd be excited to use them, let's just jump in and talk with that. Um, but can I start by pitching you some of these some of these tools? Absolutely. Yes, please go. Love it. Yeah. All right. Okay. So taking them in the same order, kinetic action. So the first tool here. Um, uh, <laughs> well, I have sort of have a guideline, which is just how do I make this one level more bonkers? Um, you sort of like just look at any given encounter and think like, how can this just be sort of, how can I like crank up the metal on this? So like, like I said before, like if they're fighting, make sure the ground is crumbling under them. If they're sort of like, if they're running, make three other things running alongside them. That's just sort of the general ethos. But how do you actually like, that's just sort of, um, I don't know, that's that's big picture. More specifically, uh, the first real tool I have is this idea of um, taking layer actions um, from big monsters and having that as a, a thing that you as the DM are thinking about as a normal part of encounter design. So you could think about just like environment actions. So maybe giving the battlefield an action that it's taking at initiative count 20, or maybe another one at initiative count 10 as well. So there's sort of like, you have a list, um, even if you're jotting it down sort of mid combat, if it's impromptu, of sort of like things that are happening on the battlefield that are sort of like outside of the actions of the players or the monsters. What do you all think about just like expanding on the layer actions idea throughout throughout the game? Ben, do you wanna hop I in first that. on this? Well, yeah, I have a thought, which is that as much as I've like theoretically loved this idea, it hasn't come up at all in the campaign that we've been in, which is probably for the best because we are getting out of almost every combat by the skin of our teeth. Um, so if <laughs> like up. if the if the environment was like throwing rocks that did like three damage at us, that would probably be the difference between a TPK and not. Well, <laughs> I don't know if we ever. Yeah, I don't know if we ever rest with this. We had a. Uh, 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 let's not get too far into. What oh, I won't. I'm just. I. I'm just talking about the. The speaking of kinetic action and uh, primordial horror, we had like our. Uh, we had a, the session like 
five sessions ago where the only reason we didn't TPK was because a uh, someone making death saves rolled a nat- uh, natural 20. That's true. So, so I don't think we need any more hazards. <laughs> but in in general, the, the environment <laughs> actions, like he's talking about, that are similar to layer actions, they actually don't need to just be bad for the party. Right. That's correct. They, can, they can harm the, the enemies as well. They can harm everyone equally, or they can have some weird, you know, sections of the battlefield so just whoever happens to be over there it could be both enemies and allies it could be you know everyone at once that's what what makes it very um very versatile for, in my mind is that the dm can kind of use it to like kind of midway through a fight be able to adjust the the flow of the battle if he if he if they feel like it's not going the way they wanted it to go <laughs> they think it's way too weak they can pump up the the you know uh, the accuracy maybe of some of these things that oh no it's going to go a little this way now or you know this section of the battlefield is going to fall away or something like that right like you can kind of improvise with that which is what I what I love about this idea I think it's and great. and yeah. that that wasn't exactly the point I was going to make as well too uh, the idea that sort of the land doesn't care who you are uh, it's going to impact all of you equally and you know if if there is an exception to that rule then I think that can all be covered by you know a an abstraction or slight twist of lair actions, you know, in the event of like, you know, uh, a druid commanding the land's power to like rise up around you and do do stuff, uh, you know, that I think I think that can just be accomplished by lair actions. But uh, environmental actions, uh, I definitely agree that the fact that uh, they can go both ways and they're sort of this impartial force, um, I think that actually sort of hits on uh kinetic action and uh you know and mystic wonder because it's it's a reminder you know it's a way to keep the battlefield dynamic and maintain that sense of unknowing momentum mobility uh but it's also a reminder that you know you are living in a in a world that is very much always moving and alive uh and you know though maybe you can't you know fully appreciate you know wow that's so beautiful while you're covered in blood and fighting for your life um i think that you know it is an opportunity to uh just sort of have that theme be present even in a place where it wouldn't ordinarily be yeah that's right and i think that the difference between a deus ex machina and a satisfying reversal is foreshadowing um, so I feel like, you know, if you, if your party is all dying and you're like, uh, all of a sudden the ground crumbles away under the monster, that's going to feel like, oh, why'd you go easy on us? <laughs> right. But yeah. if, so I would really encourage DMs as they're working, uh, on the setting to really think about like, if you've done any description or even if you sort of off the cuff, like, oh yeah. And it's like, you know, the, there's rain gathering over there, just like jot down the word rain on a piece of scratch paper near you. Uh, and then, you know, if it, the fight looks like it's starting to get bad, be like, wow, those clouds are really rolling in and you hear thunder and then you bring in the rain and then the ground's slippery and the monster slips. And then it feels completely justified by the environment. So that kind of just like, as it happens, note. And by the way, I think this works for players too. If you're fighting and your DM mentions like, you know, a, a fire that's nearby, just like write down fire. And then you can be like, hey, is that fire still burning? Like, did that catch anything? Um, and so just kind of like noting the things that are kind of like passive in the descriptions and making them active in the combat can be a really, a really like concrete way to use this. Yeah. Thinking about that from the player side is huge. I agree. Uh, I, I, as, as a DM in some scenarios, I love 
seeing players get creative with their environment mm -hmm. because sometimes it's hard as a dm to be like i'm going to put in these specific things that maybe they'll get creative with right, right. like you can't always you can't always assume that they'll they'll try to use the environment in in interesting ways but having them take the initiative and be like okay what else can i do instead of just walking up and hitting them you mm -hmm. know that that could you know give myself some sort of advantage you know shove them down a a, a ravine or something like that yeah anything like that you know what a trying perfect to opportunity for me to segue into my thesis on my monks are the best martial <laughs> oh. class no, no. here we go <laughs> and here we... oh we gotta move along guys we don't have time here i think uh... oh no, oh, no. <laughs> yeah let's actually legitimately though let's, let's actually move along to to primordial horror and, and implementing that oh, in there, game. there was one more you... thing i wanted to say oh okay well <laughs> no too bad Oh, oh what I wanted to say really quick was, uh, and I'll try to be fast, um, but it's okay, it's okay. the uh, the idea of, uh, you know, there is a general, you know, idea that in Plangea, um, a lot of the storytelling has to be done with the environment rather than being explicitly told. It's very much a show-not-tell setting. Um, yeah. And I think I think that requires skill, and I think it requires practice. And um, another thing I love is storytelling through combat. Uh, generally, uh, combat is regarded as a break in uh, in the the progression of narrative and the way stories are told. Uh, but I am not a believer in that. I believe that uh, stories can be told and stories can be advanced through combat. Um, and sort of coupling the two as far as uh, storytelling through environment, storytelling through combat and then having like environmental actions is like sort of this marriage of the of the of those two uh those two ideas and uh i just i adore it yeah that's awesome totally um and well there's one other little tool that i'll mention quickly and we don't have to linger on this but the idea of a countdown die um in the combat being something that you can set out either behind the screen or in front of the players um and sort of choose you know choose the size of die right from a d4 to a d12 or 20 or whatever and keep counting it down at the end of every either every round or every turn um and what's great about this is like the the promise is something big is going to happen at the end of this and you as the dm don't necessarily have to know depending on how improv improvisational your style is you don't have to know what that thing is right it's just you are setting out like something's going to change uh, coming up. And if you do that just like behind the screen to yourself, it can be a good reminder and you can sort of see it kind of down. But you could be watching for that big opportunity. Um, or if you know, you're able to plan and you can say like, hey, there's a herd of, you know, mammoths coming towards you. You've got eight, eight turns until they get here. Um, and the whole, the whole table is watching that die countdown. Um, you know, depending on how sort of like, mechanical or narrative how sort of like out in front of the players versus sort of pre-plan behind the screen there's a lot of ways to use something like that as a dm aid to to keep the adventure exciting yeah absolutely um okay well yeah then for the moment let's let's move along to the primordial horror uh of the setting and how best to uh see what you can uh you can put into uh, you're setting to make it creepy. Uh, what are some ideas for for how to inject some primordial horror into Blangia? 
What do we got? Awesome. Yeah. Well, first and foremost, I would be remiss if I didn't say horror is very personal and very subjective. And mm -hmm. so I would urge anyone playing with horror to um, to make yourself aware of the ideas of uh, limits, um, safety tools in very RPGs, true. especially if you're doing either playing with strangers or playing a long campaign. Um, even with people you know well, I personally have gotten on the wrong side of this. I was playing with a, a close group of friends and I thought I knew everyone's lines and I I did something that I thought was very sort of like, you know, scary, but like safe for everyone. And, you know, I, I learned the hard way that, you know, you can't assume what people's um, sort of like lines are for where the fun ends and sort of like discomfort in a not fun way begins. So please, please, please um, work with your party. This is great for session zero, but if you've already begun the campaign, it's not too late to sort of like just have a quick conversation and ask people, yeah. you know, what don't you want in this game so that exactly. it can remain fun for you? Yep. Um, so that's number one. But once you've done that, and once you feel like you have a good sense and you feel like your table does want to sort of play with that idea of primordial horror, um, then I think there's some really fascinating research out there on fear and the difference between fear, dread, and terror and horror. Um, and so the things that I found here is sort of like, uh, I'll, just, I'll just sort of run through these quickly. Fear is the proactive concern that something bad might happen. So fear is like, there's something bad that could happen out there. And so the big thing here, I think for the DM is, um, rumors of violence or unnerving events, suggesting the kind of things that might happen um, or the things that have happened to NPCs who are like them, right? So like fear is about setting the idea in their mind that this bad thing can happen to people like you. Um, and that is, I think, something that happens, you know, through role play well before they're actually out there in the dangerous environment. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, kind of getting at that like psychological um, effect that you can try to have on players, I find that there's definitely a lot of things that you can do as a DM to kind of create that that uh, you know multifaceted uh, attack on a on a on a person's comfort. <laughs> Which, mm -hmm. uh, of course, as long as you're doing it like you were saying with with you know reasonable like understanding and wanting them to still have a good time there's lots of things you can do to kind of unnerve them right where uh i know that uh our friend dan here is quite good at using uh, uh sound and not just his own voice but uh you know uh, sound devices and a little uh ambiance to uh accentuate a already creepy area with little you know dripping noises or a little uh you know ethereal cries off of the distance from a little sound mixer that he has at his, at his fingertips i immediately get shivers when shit happens like that because it's just so like i i suddenly feel like i'm in that scenario and something about that sound aspect of it to me definitely kind of activates the like the, the like fight or flight mechanism in my brain where i'm suddenly like okay something's gonna be around this corner <laughs> and i don't know what it is and it yeah so it, it gets i love it, it. yeah really good so that that's actually what this describes as dread so dread yeah. is the certainty that something bad is about to happen yeah. but without knowledge of what the bad thing will be it's that feeling of impending menace or something dangerous just out of sight and the best way to do this is exactly what you just said showing the 
awful effects of a threat before the threat itself is revealed. Yep. The anticipation. And, right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I hear it out there. I, you know, I hear someone screaming in the distance or, and especially a great way to do this is obscure the character's senses. Um, so like surround them in darkness, put them in fog, like cast a confusion spell, unexplained, like, um, you know, sounds or uh, emotions or smells. Um, all this kind of stuff is like, there's something bad, like exactly what you just said. Yeah, it's yeah. it's right around the corner. It's coming. <laughs> yeah. yeah. From the, from the sort of, from the DM side, as far as tools go, and this sort of uh, plays into what you were talking about, David, about using the five or in some cases, six senses to, uh, to foreshadow and to set up. Um, one of the things that is at least for me that one of the things that i've found as both a player and as a dm and also just um in general not necessarily associated with dnd um the the monster or whatever it is is uh scariest when you don't see it and don't understand it as soon as the unknown becomes the known uh you know and as soon as it becomes tangible you can start thinking about ways to fight it or avoid it or uh, just make sense of it. And um, while things are unknown, while things are uh, well, things are these entities that are uh, not defined in a way you understand, and they're not things that you can make sense of with your five senses. Uh, that is when you know that is when things are most scary. And yeah you can sort of accentuate that fear and build that dread and build that tension by using the environment because uh you know i think environment and I'm, at this point i'm just i'm just repeating myself beating the horse to death this poor horse um, <laughs> but using the environment to tell stories um is a, a huge part of storytelling uh, uh, especially in plangia where uh, that is one of the only ways to tell stories. Um, you know, obviously there is a, there is a more conventional, um, you know, oral storytelling and like word of mouth uh, way, but using the environment to tell stories about what has happened, what might happen, what might happen, or what hasn't happened, um, is, I think, a really big part of. Uh, you know, a really big part of the setting and a really big part of using, uh, of making use of primordial horror. Yeah, I completely agree. So then the next aspect is terror. Um, terror is the high adrenaline feeling at the moment of revelation when something terrible oh. is happening. It's, it's when the killer attacks, when the monster is chasing you. And it is really hard to sustain in D&D because violence is wrapped in the initiative system, right? So like, let's roll initiative, everyone's like, okay, well, now let me do some math, um, which like removes the terror. So uh, one tool here is if at all possible, um, at, if, if you want to maximize terror, it is great to, and this is hard, you can't do this all the time, and you want to avoid this sort of cutscene mechanic, but if when the monster is revealed, there is a moment of like, terrifying action before the players have a chance to act and i think like the classic example here is like um jurassic park when the uh when the t-rex lunges out and eats the goat or eats you know something and it's not attacking the players but it's sort of like 
uh, no, someone needs to go, whatever, it's eating something. Um, <laughs> it's sort of this lunging, it's not threatening the main characters, but it is sort of like killing and being horrible and you just sort of like see it ripping something apart or doing whatever it does to the thing. And then, and there's that, that allows the terror to sort of like remain for longer in the moment before you roll initiative. Yeah, I, I like that kind of way to keep it, like, you know, you don't just like be like, haha, you're surprised, surprise round, it gets a thing. But kind of just have it, yeah, happen outside of that initiative before you pause and ha allow them to kind of take a moment. So it, yeah. it can be tied to the fact that this creature is supernaturally, you know, fast and it's on you immediately or something. Or, yeah, exactly. Or something that you just have to, you, you, they're kind of, um, you're, you're narrating them being in, in awe and terror of this creature as it comes in. And so you're like, you're, your feet feel almost stuck for a moment as you witness yeah. this happen. And then you're able to spring into motion and, you mm -hmm. know, do whatever they want to do. Maybe they are just terrified and want to leave. Maybe you give it a frightened feature, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like just like, yeah. And having some way for them to witness it doing its thing um, to the extent that you want to reveal that some of that you might want to keep secret. Um, but sort of like witnessing the, the, that moment of terror before you as the player are asked to like engage the mechanical side of your brain um, feels like yeah. a good way of sort of sustaining that moment. Totally, totally. Um, one and then other I feel like, thing. Oh yeah, go oh, ahead, please. No go. One thing. One thing I like about. Well, I don't. This isn't really mechanically correct, but something something that I like doing is instead of rolling to hit my players, which is fun and not as or less fun and not as scary i'd tell them to make dex saves to dodge um and i think it's it's obviously not mechanically correct and it's not it doesn't really work that well but i think it can be more interesting when they don't know what's gonna hit them and they're just kind of like making the deck save out of the blue um with the whole like initiative order thing it's it kind of it allows them to feel that terror, almost. I don't. I. I. That's just my little. That's my little trick. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I get that. Um, I feel like we should. I. I so, so <laughs> taking a lot of time with these. I'll just mention the fine. last one, which is um horror, and the idea here, although horror is obviously like encapsulate all these, but like in a formal way, uh, the construct here is that horror is it's a thing that lingers after the terrifying event has taken place. It's that memory you can't shake, the harrowed feeling that forever changes you. So like horror is the goal and it's difficult to create, but it remains the longest. Like um, the and trauma, I think the, kind of? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The trauma okay. is a good way of saying it. And it's That's like- Everybody comes see, together every week to play, to do with their friends, right? <laughs> it's called long lasting trauma. <laughs> Dungeons and trauma. Dungeons and trauma. <laughs> Um, yeah, and you know, you can do this by like talking to your characters after an arc, players after an arc and being like, hey, like how, what effect has that had on your character? Like I think good role players, like really great role players will already be kind of thinking in this way. But I think as a DM, you can be like, you know, how is your character processing that? Like they saw that, like, does that change the way that they're thinking or feeling about things? Or just showing NPCs who are sort of, you know, doing the classic, like, the horror, the horror, like just forever, like shaken and hollow because of it. Um, uh, like I said, it's kind of a goal to get to. It's the end effect, but um, 
I think talking I know, to I feel people. Like, <laughs> yeah. I feel like mentally annihilating your p- players' characters <laughs> is maybe not the goal. <laughs> maybe not for Wait, you. Wait, that's not your goal? Could be. Could be. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's definitely, it might be one of them, but whether it is the absolute or not, I don't think it needs to be. In uh, and to be clear, I don't mean that you're... PC should be forever broken because of like every or even any encounter. I more mean is there is there an emotional impact that is going to make the game more real and resonant and fun for your players? Like even if it's just down to the fact of like, man, my character like hates like that kind of a villainous monster now in a way that they never did before, and they remember that. It's almost like that. Then um, that like. Clementine will remember this mechanic, right? It's like, <laughs> how has this marked your character? That's a good point. Yeah, yeah definitely. Kind of staying in their memories is important for sure. One, one, one last thing I would like to add is, um, and this is just general uh, using horror and tabletops as is, because uh, you know you do have to balance it with suspension of belief or suspension of disbelief. Um, and Curse of Strahd does a good job of talking about this, but uh, you have to. You can't be 100% primordial horror all the time. No. Um, or else it sort of it, it dries up and it becomes sort of uh, it becomes faint to your players. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that's and and the the mention of of mystic wonder as this sort of opportunity for you know things that are beautiful and uh, fresh and just uh, an opportunity to look at the environment and appreciate it in some way. Um, you know, just like just like gallows humor, or you know, just like you know, horror and gothic horror uses humor to offset it uh, and sort of provide relief and allow your uh, you know allow players to sort of get a break from uh, just like the unending assault of the 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 death and the dread and the and you know and the terror. Um, you know, using Mystic Wonder to offset those moments of primordial horror is, I think, uh, the way to go about it. And uh, not only does that give your players a break and sort of uh, make sure that they can, you know, they don't get mentally exhausted, but also it means that when those moments of horror do happen, uh, they hit that much harder. Yeah, that's great. And a perfect segue to talking about Inspiring Wonder and I'll, I can be really quick on this. I think the three real tools that I'm interested in this are um, one, the idea of sudden lyricism in the middle of, it's it's exactly what you were just talking about, Dan. It's like um, abruptly breaking through the tension of survival or menace uh, with like a moment of beauty. Okay, so another um, tool that you can use is the idea of breaking the guessing engine. Just like, and this is less about, oh, that's so beautiful. I've never seen that before. And more like, oh, wow, like that's surprising. Um, And I think the uh, tool that's sort of like included here in the book is uh, the idea of monster templates. So um, uh, making a monster weirder, right? Adding a frill to an owl bear or spines on an ooze, kind of going for that like, uh, Mesozoic weirdness that animals sort of had uh, during the you know during the Earth's history, um, but applying that to d- monsters that you sort of think you already know about. So just creating wonder simply by sort of changing the creatures that the party's encountering. And then the final tool for wonder is paradox. 
Um, and this one, I think you kind of have to like, either really just kind of mention in passing or think a lot about sort of ahead of time. Um, it's kind of hard to do it like right in the middle. Um, but the idea of choosing something that's in, intentionally a contradiction. So like um, think about like, what would an underwater fire look like and why would it be there or an upside down tree or a storm made of stone? Um, and sort of just taking something that is inherently you know, self-contradictory and either building a lot around it or just kind of mentioning in passing, like off in the distance, you see what looks like a stone storm, but fair warning, your players are probably gonna go, wanna go right towards that. So maybe we're ready to pack it up. Definitely. And uh, what, one more thing I'd like to add about the sort of using the environment and using the fact that Plangea is this world of firsts and sort of uh, harnessing that mystic wonder in the environment. Um, it's the idea of sort of that larger than life aspect to it. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, is described in the book is sort of the realization of like how small the characters are in comparison to everything else around them. Um, and there are moments where uh, I feel like the DM can really lean into that. Um, you know, one fantastic example of like the larger than life is, um, you know, Free Citadel. And like the freed uh, giant city where the walls like stretch, they just go up and they keep going up because it's, you know, it's a giant sized city. Um, and you can do that to other things. You can, you can, you know, you can talk about, you know, man-made bridges that were like pulled together by mortals that are large enough for like, you know, pack dinosaurs to walk across. You know, it's these things that, uh, you know, span these massive chasms and they're held together by, you know, a mixture of just, uh, mortal ingenuity and uh magic and uh don't think about it too much don't worry about it just accept it that it's happening um and i think in the setting uh when stuff like that does happen i think the more you lean into it the more i don't i don't know about believable but the more feasible and the less out of place it feels um yeah so if you if you take it and you run with it uh in those cases um, I think that will also incentivize and encourage your players to also to sort of like deepen the immersion and just like be there in the moment and spend more time being just awed by this and less time thinking about the logistics of how that something like that could physically work. Yeah, that's great. Well, this has been amazing. <laughs> I could talk about these themes for a long time. I think we're actually already over time. Uh, so um, I think that we're gonna try and squeeze in our last section. We'll just let this have a little bit of a longer run time, but we'll, we'll touch only lightly on the last, uh, the last segment here, um, which is people, places, and things. Talking about a location, faction, threat, or race from Plangea. And I did wanna talk for a minute, and this doesn't have to take very long, um, about dwarves in Plangea and the difference between the dwarves we all know and love uh, that are universally Scottish, uh, you know, uh, Gimli's to Plangean dwarves. Um, and I'll just like start off with a quick description, which is essentially for all of the you know core races, the question was how do you sort of like take what's iconic about the race and just like kind of like de-evolve it or rewind it backwards or find like the more primal expression of that. And the idea with dwarves in Plangea is that they are literally half stone. 
So that can look a lot of different ways, but the most common expression is a plain Gian dwarf will literally have like stone, like spikes or outcroppings or like, you know, their joints will be kind of like rubbly. They have like skin that is mixed and mingled with stone. They might have like crystals growing in their beards. Um, and they are sort of like freshly hewn from or freshly sort of like born of uh, the earth itself. Um, so that's a big idea with dwarves. Uh, okay. Any of you have like big comments or thoughts about that? This is like one of my favorite things from the start. Here of we go. Have you have to make the U-shaped hole. That was all I had to do. Nice. <laughs> There's something about uh, uh, this the kind of aesthetic for dwarves that is so fascinating to me and so interesting, but not just the aesthetic uh, implications of it, but also that there's kind of thematic implications of like, yeah, they're like more one with the earth. They're, they're more tied to the ground, like classic dwarves don't like being up high type thing. Um, and like just have having that extra connection with stone with the thing that makes uh makes them you know uh good at what they do right is you know mining and the 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 very tropey dwarven things is is you know having that extra um kind of elemental uh synergy there uh gives me gives me so much happiness with so many different ideas that i have in playing g i mean i've already started playing as a dwarf with one one of those ideas which is the genie patron for the dao so extra all of, all of the the stone energy possible i have right <laughs> that's <laughs> awesome grabbing as many things as possible and shoving them into that character but yeah you can do you can do so many things with the dwarves in this setting that's what i love uh they they're tied to the giants uh in some places they're tied to to several different uh you know cities within this area as as you know crafters as they normally kind of have fill that role but in in a in an almost more you know they're, they're no longer smithing they're kind of taking this like maybe maybe they're people who are building things with out of stone because you know that's the a classic thing that dwarves do and they can absolutely still do that in this setting although it's you know it's just taking a different uh uh look at it basically well and two aspects of that that are uh express themselves is one Canonic or sort of like stereotypically in Plangea, dwarves really have a hard time wrapping their head around change and around sort of like species or other races being fickle. Uh, they're very, very constant um, by constitution. And obviously that's a generalization. You can play a dwarf that changes their mind all the time, but like it's a fun sort of like trope that you can start out with and see where that leads you. Um, and then the other one is, you know, one of the questions I had in my mind was, you know, the, the classic image of the Stone Age involves like these megaliths, right? These men hairs and sort of circles of standing stone that we know from our own history, um, as well as like D&D has so much to do with exploring ruins. And all of these things sort of like solve themselves beautifully with dwarves because uh, something that is uh, true of dwarves in general in the setting is that they are fascinated by the idea of building uh, and constructing. And so they'll create sort of these stone fortresses, right? They'll like see a cave and they'll carve it intricately or they'll like haul rocks to the top of a mountain and make it like a lookout. But as soon as they're done building it, they're like, well, why would we live here anymore? Like it's finished, it's time to move on and build the next thing. So you have the opportunity to have these like abandoned places that other things have moved into 
um, without a lot of ancient history, just because the dwar- this is how the dwarves kind of like naturally move through the world. There's this sense of abandonment uh, with dwarves that I really like because in classical D&D, they have really rich history. They've been living there for some odd 400 years. It's all this like, oh, well, my grandfather's grandfather made that carving on that bridge over there. Um, Whereas these dwarves probably have no idea where they came from, no idea where they're going, and are making things on the spot where they're going, um, which I think is super awesome. And also just leads to all these dwarven ruins that are like, yeah, they're there. I don't know. I, it really appeals to me, the kind of changing nature of them and also their kind of unchanging ways. Definitely. Yeah, that's to, awesome. To build off of what Avalon said about that, um, I do like that dwarves sort of serve as a living answer to the question, how can these sprawling ruins of, you know, civilizations that are clearly ages past exist in a world uh, where, you know, there is no history and there is this this sense of impermanence um, and I think even that itself sort of leans into a bit of, uh, you know, David, what you've been mentioning about, um, you know, the the paradoxes that can be used to evoke mystic wonder. Uh, so, you know, and and I think this isn't unique to just the dwarves, but you know, this is a this is a fantastic example of how uh, you've so beautifully, uh, you know, designed the lore of of the dwarves to, you know. Their, their, the existence uh, and sort of their, their little intricacies and and the way they, the way they act and their impulses, um, sort of, are explanatory for things in the world that do ev- uh, evoke mystic wonder. Um, and I just, I think that's so cool. Right. I think that's a great note to end on. Um, so uh, thank you all for being here. Thanks for going along. Um, and thank you for listening. Uh, this has been The Clampfire. If you want to learn more about the setting, you can go to plaingia.com or click the link in our show notes to join the discard. Just discard? To join, <laughs> to join the discord. Uh, or you can hang out with us. Uh, eat, some, eat some dinosaur meats, gather around the fire, uh, talk about these three themes and dwarves and lunge teeth and everything else um until next time good luck have fun and uh don't let dan creep you out too much with distant screams in the background that's a terrible outro